The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Why do people with normal cholesterol levels get heart attacks? Heart surgeon Dr. Philip Ovedia believes it's because of poor metabolic health, not cholesterol. After performing over 3,000 heart surgeries, Dr. Ovedia decided to work on prevention and not just treatment. In his book, Stay Off My Operating Table, Dr. Ovedia shows you his seven principles of metabolic health and how to use them to reduce your risk of heart disease. Get your free audiobook version of Stay Off My Operating Table at ifixhearts.com forward slash Zuby. That's ifixhearts.com forward slash Zuby to get your free audiobook. Go check it out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a brilliant guest. We have chatted many times on the social medias, but this is our first time having a conversation face-to-face. -face. We'll surely have one later down the line in person. She is a board-certified plastic surgeon and also the host of the Netflix show Skin Decision. And this is, of course, Dr. Sheila Nazarian. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've been so looking forward to this chat. Fantastic. So, Sheila, I've done a very brief intro there, but for those who are not familiar with who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, like all of us, I feel like we're all very multifaceted human beings. Um, yes, I'm a plastic surgeon. I'm a mom of three, um, a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, and an 11-year-old. I'm married to a brain and spine surgeon. Um, I'm actually first-generation um, Iranian Jew. We escaped to this lovely country that we both enjoy. Um, and yeah, I've just recently, within the last few years, become a big activist as well. Just seeing my kids being a couple years away from college and saying, oh my God, I have to speak up or I'm sending them off into war with no, with no, nothing, nothing to defend themselves. So it's just, um, I love doing all of the things in business. I love the activism. I love familyhood and motherhood. Um, I love fashion, just 
all the things. Amazing. There's so much that we can get into here, but I know you have a really interesting and unique backstory. So let's start there. Tell me about your childhood. Yeah, sure. So um, I was born in 1979, the year of the Iranian Revolution. Uh, my mom actually flew to New York so that I would be a U.S. citizen. So she was like nine months pregnant. I think she had me at like 10 months pregnant. Uh, probably not the best. But um, once I was born, we went back to Iran. Um, the revolution was in full swing. Lots of anti-Semitism, lots of racism against Jews. and But they wouldn't let us leave. So we were kind of stuck there. Then the Iran-Iraq um, Iran war started. There was bombs flying everywhere. I remember sirens would go off in the middle of the night. We'd run to the windows and my parents would be like, look at the fireworks. Um, and so that was happening. A bomb landed a couple blocks away from our house. We were seeing what the treatment of women was becoming. Um, and my parents just had two daughters. And my dad was the chief medical officer for the Shaw's Heart Hospital. He's a pathologist. And one of his lab techs, um, he had saved his eyesight. My, my dad had diagnosed a parasite in his eye and saved his eyesight. And so he came to my dad. He was part of the besiege, the um, Revolutionary Guard. He said, listen, you saved my eyes. I'm going to save your life. You're on the list. You need to get out of Iran like now. Um, and so my dad left um, my mom, my sister and I's passport with the government, said he was going on a medical conference. So he flew out to Vienna, stayed with one of the professors he had met at one of these medical conferences and just every day worked on sort of helping us get visas so that we could get, you know, eventually out to meet him as well. Um, my mom, my sister and I, one day we went to the bazaar like any other day and we got in the back of this car. Um, we were kind of curled in the fetal position around each other with strangers that we didn't know. They put burlap sacks on top of us and corn. Um, and that's how we got, it kind of got close to the, um, Pakistani border. And I remember there was something sticking up from the bottom of the car and it was digging into my ribs. And I told my mom, like, you know, I was, I was really uncomfortable. She's like, Shh, just have to stay quiet for a while. Just take it. So we got to the border. We went to this, um, hole in the ground, which they call the bathroom, and that's where my mom told me we were going to America. And I just remember saying, I'm going to meet Michael Jackson because that's what America meant, went, meant to me. We had all these like bootleg thriller videos. And I remember like being in our living room at home in Iran and I would try to learn the dance. And so that's what America was to me. I was super excited. Um, and, you know, then we spent one night in the desert on our way to Pakistan. And then the second night, um, that we were almost across the border. The border guard saw our pickup truck and we were just sitting in the back on top of our luggage with other people that were getting smuggled out as well. Um, they turned on the car lights because they had been seen because they started shooting at us. And then we went over a ravine, like two wheels were on one side of the ravine, two wheels were on the other side. And the border police was like, that's too risky. And they didn't follow us. So that's how we made it into Pakistan. We had to stay in Pakistan for three months waiting for our visas to come through. Um, and eventually we reunited with my dad in Vienna. And I remember being at the train station, not recognizing my father. Cause I, you know, I was six and a half, seven years old and I hadn't seen him for months. Um, and when he, he had shaved his beard, so I didn't recognize mm -hmm. him at all. And he started speaking and I was like, Oh, that's my dad. And so we stayed in Vienna for about a month and eventually made it over to the States. Amazing. So what year did you arrive in the USA? 1985. Okay. And what were your first impressions? You know, it was tough. So I came in, I didn't speak any English. I was such a nerd. I was in ESL. Um, it was tough. I got teased a lot, um, but I learned English rather quickly. And, you know, 
didn't necessarily have the best clothes and I was super skinny. Like I remember when we were studying anorexia, everybody was like, Oh, like Sheila. I was like, I'm not, I swear. <laughs> uh, but I was just one of those like really thin, um, like fragile looking kids growing up. Um, but I was smart. I had total imposter syndrome. I didn't think I was smart. Every accolade I would get, or if I got accepted into a special program, I'd be like, they're going to figure me out. I'm not, I don't belong here. They're going to figure it out. Um, but my mom was kind of always my rock. And she always told me, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're special, even though I wasn't receiving any of that messaging at school. So that's one of the things I always try to remember with my own kids is you are their rock. You know, you are their unconditional love. They, they high school so much, I feel like harder even now with cancel culture and like, you can't say this or you have to tiptoe around everything. And so I just, I just try to remember every time I get angry or impatient or anything like that, that I have to be what my mom was to me because she really helped shape like the person that I am now. Unfortunately, you know, she passed away when I was 16 from breast cancer. And um, that was, you know, something I kind of, we, we didn't have therapy. I feel like therapy was like very taboo back then. I probably should have gone to therapy. But what I did is I just started working harder and making sure my dad was okay. My sister was okay. And just throwing myself into my schoolwork um, and trying to kind of not think about it. And I remember not even crying for like six months after it had yeah. happened. And, you know, as you know, like big life events, you know, when my, I got married or I had my first child and just not having my mom there was very difficult. But before she passed away, she told me, she said, I gave you roots and the wings to fly. So, you know, she really gave me those roots, which I'm so grateful for. And she always said, you know, you can accomplish anything. You can do anything. And again, just the power a parent has to affect someone's self-worth and self-image is amazing. Yeah. It's the most important job in the world. And I know that people say that, but I don't think people fully understand or think about just how important it is because it doesn't just affect your children. It affects everyone who ever in that child's life is going to interact with them, right? If you raise great children, then they go on in the world and they do all sorts of good and positive things and help other people. If you raise bad kids, then it's not just bad for them or even yourself or your family. It's, it's, you know, harmful for society. Zuby, I want to hear about uh, your childhood. What were your parents like? Oh, my parents are amazing. My parents are amazing. Um, I talk to them several times a week. They've been married for almost 50 years. So my dad is a physician. He's a mm. medical doctor in the UK. Of course, a lot of people know I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Mm. So I lived there for 20 years and my, my parents used to work over there. Both my parents are originally from Nigeria. I'm one of, one of five. I've got nine nieces and nephews. I'm the only child that does not yet have children. So um, yeah, no I'm pressure. from a... I'm from a <laughs> Actually, there is no pressure because I'm the youngest. So, you know, the, the first four are out the way. So I kind of get left alone. Um, yeah. And uh, no, my, my parents are incredible. Anytime anyone, at, I often get asked in interviews, you know, who, who are my role models or who are the people I look up to or, you know, grew looking up to. And I always say, number one, you know, my mom and my dad. So they did an amazing job and they continue to do an amazing job. My dad is well, I was going to say my dad's very much like me. It's more like I'm very much like my dad in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Uh, if you imagine a 40-year older and wiser version of me, 
How could anyone be wiser than Zuby? <laughs> <laughs> give me, give me another forty years, and uh, yeah, he's got like encyclopedic knowledge on religion and history and biology and the human body and medicine, and yeah, he's a very, very, very sharp guy. But yeah, God bless my parents; they're uh, they're wonderful, and it sounds like you had wonderful parents as well. Thank God. Yeah. So tell me more about the story from then on. So you went to. You went to university in the U.S. Let's yeah, continue with so the story. I actually went to Columbia University. Um, early decision, applied to one place. And back then, you Persian girls didn't leave the parents' house unless you were getting married. And if you did, mm -hmm. it meant you're a whore, basically. <laughs> so wow, uh, okay. <laughs> so um, my dad always said, you know, go um, to the best school you can get into. And I totally remember. I was like, Dad, I got accepted to Columbia. And he goes, which means, okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um yeah no so i went to columbia um i think that's when i really like came out of my shell and like felt pretty and like all those good things for the first time which was actually awesome i always tell my kids stay nerdy stay nerdy for as long as possible and uh you'll be fine so um i went there and then i went to albert einstein college of medicine um in the bronx for, and that's a Yeshiva University school. And then I got accepted into a plastic surgery program at um, University of Southern California. And then in between my general surgery training and plastic surgery training, I went to the Marshall School of Business as well um, and had three children during residency, which was insane and not easy at all because it was like pure exhaustion. I barely like, I don't even know. I don't, everything's a blur from that time for those eight years. Um, and then I just came out and started my own practice. Um, very early on, knew how to be successful. Um, I knew how to market. I knew how to read a balance sheet. I knew how to um, communicate in a way that was really effective and informative. And so I just started making a bunch of videos because I knew people didn't want to read anymore. I was like, people don't want to read. I'm going to make a bunch of videos. Mm -hmm. So I think I was one of the first plastic surgeons on YouTube. And as you know, Google owns YouTube. And so my SEO and all of that search engine stuff, just, I was on the first page of Google within two years, if you search Beverly Hills oh, Plastic wow. Surgeon. <laughs> mm -hmm. And just to give you an idea, there's 31 plastic surgeons just in my building. So that was quite an accomplishment. <laughs> I call it the car lot of plastic surgeons. Um, and so, yeah, I just started doing pretty well. And it became almost like a video resume. I was getting tons of press, tons of media opportunities. I always knew I wanted my own show. Uh, I was a dancer. I did theater. I, you know, I love being in front of a camera. And so, and I was, I love impacting the masses. I feel like doing mm -hmm. surgery one at a time is amazing, but if you can impact the masses, that's really gratifying and fulfilling to me. So um, eventually we got, you know, the Netflix show after a few tries um, and it did really well. We got nominated for an Emmy, which was crazy. Um, it was COVID. So I did the whole Emmy thing from my kitchen table. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> didn't really get the red carpet experience, unfortunately, but it was still really cool. Um, and yeah, I just feel like every year is just so different from the year before. And it's all about just being flexible and creative and being diversified in your businesses so that, you know, if one thing happens, you can kind of sweep in with the other ones and, and, and just keep, keep swimming, keep on swimming. Amazing. Man, there's so many directions that we can go here. But what is it that made you want to study plastic surgery and become a plastic surgeon of all the yeah, different options so that you had? My, when I was little, I was very like crafty. Like I would always do like stupid stuff, like build a suitcase out of duct tape 
or something random, my mom would always say, which means the expert in useless things. Uh, but I really think all of that stuff really just prepared me for becoming like the plastic surgeon I am today. Um, so yeah, I actually did wood shop. I was the only girl. I think it was the fourth grade and I wanted to drop out because I felt super awkward, but I kept going. I loved like the almost obsessive compulsive uh, blueprint making, like your arrows have to be a certain way. The number two has to be written a certain way. And I just love that precision. And then building it was so much fun. So I said, okay, maybe I want to be an architect or an orthopedic surgeon. I kind of knocked out architecture because I actually wanted to build it. I just didn't want to design it. And then so I started shadowing an uh, orthopedic surgeon for seven months. Wasn't that creative. It was very cookie cutter, like literally. And so I was kind of disappointed. And then one of my friends was like, well, why don't you look into plastic surgery? So I started shadowing a plastic surgeon who eventually became one of my mentors. And it was the perfect fit. And I'll, I will say this, if I didn't get accepted into plastic surgery, I would have gone into like the business of medicine or something else. Because yeah. the only thing in medicine I wanted to do was that. I hear that. And you said that you, when you started your practice, you had all of these various skills from business to communication, all that. Do, are those things that, where, where did that come from? Are those things that you think you sort of naturally had a proclivity for? Or are those specific things you learned in business school or from your family experiences? Where, where did that come from? Well, I mean, I think being a dancer and like being comfortable on stage and perform, you know, being performative, um, whether you're a comedian, a doctor, a teacher, that those are all performative, I think. Like when you walk into a room to pitch, you know, your music, you have to read the room. You have to say, how am I speaking to this person so that they, you know, react and, and kind of identify and, and connect with me. Uh, so I think that was very helpful. Um, as far as the business stuff, so I actually wanted to be a religion major at Columbia. And mm. I walked in the first day to class and the guy said, I don't give out A's. And I wanted to go to medical school. So I was like, okay, well, this isn't going to work out. So then I switched to philosophy. They didn't give out A's. And I was like, okay, what are all the jocks majoring in? <laughs> they were all in economics. I'm like, okay, I could get an A in economics. So I, I made wait, wait, so uh, I'm, I'm curious as to this, we don't give out A's. What's that about? You know, I think they wanted to like, I don't know, weed people out or like see who was serious or I don't know what, but they were like, we don't give out A's. Oh. And I was like, okay, okay well, I need it. Mama needs A's to get into medical school. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if me. they don't give out A's, doesn't that just mean that a B is an A essentially? Yeah, but not to medical school, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I just started doing economics and I was actually super fascinated by it. I think it is like, very similar to religion. I think it's very similar to like philosophy and sociology. It's kind of like, how do people think about what they're investing in or what they buy or, you know, just, it was very interesting stuff. Like they were saying during a recession, lipstick sales go up, right? Because people don't have money to splurge on clothes or jewelry or certain things, but they want those little, you know, happy moments. So they buy mm -hmm. a lot of lipstick. Right. So it was just like super interesting things like that. I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Um, and so I just got really, you know, kind of like I, I was, it was kind of like a nice little primer to it. And when I was in residency, business school, as you know, typically wants you to be out in the workforce for three to five years before they accept you. But I got I got in as a resident. I was the only resident they'd ever like taken. 
And um, I felt like that was really interesting because there was such a diverse mix of people in my classes. Like we had the chief medical officer of NASA. We had people, mm. that, physicians that were running insurance companies. We had physicians that were running hospitals. We had private practice. We had a, a, such, it was, and I, I think it was just so cool because when there is diversity in the room, you get so many different viewpoints on one subject. Um, and I thought that was really, really neat. We got, we learned how to make a business plan. Every project that we did sort of resulted in your business plan, which I think was invaluable. And I didn't particularly like P&Ls and balance sheets. And I think that's what's missing a lot now from like, live your best life. Like all these posts on Instagram, live your best life. Like make it in your twenties. And I'm like, no, you have to suffer in your twenties. Like you have to take classes <laughs> you might not actually enjoy so that you could be successful later on with the skill set that you've obtained. So I, I have to unfollow those things. They, they drive me nuts. Um, but yeah, so, you know, taking some of those classes wasn't as much fun as I would like to have been having, but now running my own businesses, how could I communicate if I didn't know the community, you know, the, the verbiage of accounting and finance, how? Yeah, I hear that. And when you started your practice, did you have a particular specialty? Was it a certain procedure that people were primarily coming to you for, or was it more general? No, I mean, I always went into it with the reason why most people go into plastic surgery, Zuby, is because we don't want to do one thing. Like, I don't want to be a heart surgeon and stare at the heart all day. You know, I don't want to, I, I don't just want to do one thing. So plastic surgery, surgery on the entire body. So I really just enjoyed that mix of stuff so that I wouldn't get bored. I also mm -hmm. had a ton of devices. The first three years, every dollar that I made went back into the practice, whether it was for advertising, device purchases, whatever, decorations, <laughs> whatever it was, it was, it was back into the practice. And, um, no. So I think that I was kind of like a good mix of surgical and non-surgical. And that was very attractive to people. It almost became like a one-stop shop. So they didn't have to go one place for their facial, another place for their laser hair removal, another place for their skin laser, another place for surgery. It was almost mm -hmm. like, okay, we don't age in one dimension. If I'm doing your facelift, I'm also going to laser your skin. So it matches how young your face looks. Um, so I think that natural results, not looking like an alien, um, was my specialty. <laughs> yeah, um, which, believe ones. it or not, uh, wasn't so popular maybe 10 years ago, but is kind of popular now. So I feel like people are like slowly coming into the um, aesthetic. And I also think it attracts the people that I want to be spending time with. So I always say what you put out there is what you attract. So I put out normal, intelligent don't want to look like an alien. I show myself injecting my own face, but I don't look like an alien, hopefully. And so I attract super successful, well-adjusted people who aren't narcissistic and just, you know, have generally good health, but need help with this one little thing. Like mm -hmm. working out's not going to lift your face up, you know, um, or your boobs <laughs> or your butt. So, uh, so it's just been really fun. I have the best patients. You know, we spend like 15 minutes on aesthetic talk and like 45 minutes on investments and tax planning. Like, mm. <laughs> so it's, it's a really fun, um, you know, so, so like social hour really. Yeah. What are, what do you think are some of the misconceptions and myths and misunderstandings that people have when it comes to plastic surgery? Because I mean, for me personally, it's quite a, a neutral, a neutral term. Um, I think we're all aware of the excesses 
of it and some of the stuff that is crazy, whether that's people looking like aliens or walking around with, you know, boobs the size of giant watermelons or doing crazy, you know, there, there's, there are some, some real crazy and, you know, I would even say unethical stuff that does mm -hmm. exist and that can be done with it. But then there's also stuff that's, you know, much more mild or minor or moderate, or, you know, of course you have people who even have injuries or, you know, burns, accidents, certain things that maybe they're even born with that they feel very self-conscious about, all those kind of things. And I think it's positive to help people, you know, regain their self-esteem and confidence and things like that with particular things and hang-ups that they have with their body. So what are, what are your sort of general thoughts in that, in that area? First of all, what, what do you think are some of the misconceptions? Well, I think the misconceptions um, come from two things. A, before my show, kind of typically the shows that are about plastic surgery on TV are kind of um, making fun of the patients or kind of like more of a circus uh, sideshow type of representation of what plastic surgery is. But our show was very like very ethical, I think, and beautiful and really showed docu-style why these people are getting these things done. Like the first episode, um, one of the patients was shot by her husband nine times and just wanted to get the scars removed, right? Yeah. Or acne scarring. Something as simple as that can really get in the way of someone's confidence. It's on your face. You know, you can't really cover it up. So it can, I, I look at plastic surgery, whether it's a craniofacial deformity that someone's born with, whether it's a burn, whether it's reconstruction after breast cancer, it's all about quality of life if you think about it. So let's say you have to have a mastectomy. You can live without a breast, but we pay for it to get reconstructed because it's a quality of life issue and it's a confidence issue. It, that's how it is. Whether I'm in the ER sewing up someone's forehead, um, take doing hand surgery, like all of those things are really quality of life issues. And I look at them all the same way. Um, and the, and the other side of it is that you never, Zuby, notice good plastic surgery, right? So if you're mm -hmm. walking down the street and somebody has fantastic plastic surgery, you can't tell. You're just like, wow, she looks good or he looks great. But you only notice the crazy. So it's like plastic surgery gets this bad rap with most representation on TV and also the fact that you only notice the bad work or the mm -hmm. unethical work or the crazy work. You don't notice the good stuff. So we're kind of um, that place where somebody might show up with big lips or massive breasts, but we're the ones they come to to dissolve it. We're the ones they come to downsize. We're the ones that make them look normal again. Yeah. So that's our niche. That's our practice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the myths are that it's narcissistic, that it always looks fake. Like I'm known as the small breast queen. Like that's my hashtag on Instagram and people <laughs> fly from all over the world just to get B sized breast implants, you know, and not get pushed to D where a lot of people push. Oh, you're going to think you went too small. Why is it's not even worth it if you go that size? No, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's what matches that person's body and looks natural. So, yeah. so that's kind of, um, we're, we're trying to make plastic surgery, give it a good name, do things ethically. Um, because you're right. I mean, ultimately, it is the plastic surgeon who's the gatekeeper. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious. So when you say quality of life, that's a term that you've brought up a couple of times. Who determines that? Because it's something that, you know, there can be people out there who maybe are very narcissistic, you know, truly, or who have certain body dysmorphias or who have certain hangups or 
you know, there, there are de certainly people out there who don't almost like they don't realize what they look like. Does yeah. So ultimately, I mean, I hate to say yeah. it, but in my practice, I decide that. Okay. So we have questionnaires for mental health in their intake forms. Is someone forcing you to do this? Did someone say something to you about your this body part that you're inquiring about that's making you come in here? Um, is anyone forcing you to be here? Um, do you want this surgery? How long have you been thinking about this? Whether it's in a, any aesthetic procedure, it could be Botox. Mm -hmm. Like I had a guy come in, he was a lawyer and he had these, you know, 11 lines between his eyebrows. And um, he's like, my wife sent me here. She says, I look angry, but I am angry. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> this, like go. And I just, it was a, a simple thing like Botox. And I said, go, you don't want this. You're yeah. not doing this for yourself. So you shouldn't get it mm -hmm. done. It could be something as simple as that. I've also had people ask me to remove their um, navel. I've had remove people ask navel. me to remove their navel. I've had people ask me to cut off their earlobes. So that's a hard no, both of those things. So ultimately, I'm the gatekeeper. So when I walk in the room, people think they're interviewing me. No, I'm interviewing you. Because <laughs> I give all my patients my cell phone number too. And really, I'm like, is this somebody that I want this person to have my cell phone number? Yeah. In terms of the in terms of the wider profession, what do you think are so? Of course, you you have your own boundaries and personal moral compass and ethics that that guide you. But clearly, there are some <laughs> there are some people doing some of these procedures who you know I can see by the results that they that they don't right. There's people who will right. just take money and do remove add whatever thing that the person thinks that they that they want. How do you think that that minefield is best is best navigated sort of as a I guess, I guess as an industry or as a society or I don't know exactly what the what the laws even are when it comes to this stuff like I've seen well, I mean, putting certain in things massive, be done. Yeah. yeah, I mean putting in massive breast implants is not against the law, right? But again, yeah. it's almost like what are you putting out there and what kind of human are you attracting? And is it all about the money? And sometimes it is all about the money for people across all industries. For me, I always said, I want to sleep well at night. I'm not hungry. My kids are in good private schools. <laughs> like we're, I have a house, like I'm good. Uh, I'm just going to ride this out very ethically and, you know, stay true to my core values and be a good role model for my kids and for my patients. Um, but no, I mean, I think that's, there's that in every industry, right? Whether it's the music industry, um, lawyers right there's people that will do yeah for, for sure there are and i would kids. say that oh, oh yeah De no yeah. definitely every 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 industry has its um has its issues and its potential corruption and ethical problems i would say that with something like plastic surgery though in particular because you are altering people's bodies right you're you're cutting and stitching mm -hmm. and adding and removing and so I don't know, say in the music industry, yeah, sure, there could be certain issues, but you're, you're not, you're not cutting anyone up. You're not physically altering people in this way. I don't know if you're a, it's a little bit like, how would I put it? I, I think in different, every industry and every profession has its potential problems. I would say that for some, it's more severe than in mm -hmm. others, right? If you get a, if you get a, a bad plumber is less of a problem than a bad police officer, right? A bad pilot or a bad surgeon is, has the capacity to do way more damage than a bad no, math teacher. 
I mean, yeah. it goes along with, you know, the privilege of being able to do this and knowing the trust that people put in you mm -hmm. and, you know, being ethical when you have that much trust. I mean, look at politicians. We vote for them. We trust them. Do they always deliver on no, the responses I, I don't, but... that we've given them? <laughs> <laughs> I worked out. I worked that one out a while ago. <laughs> I know. No, but you know what I mean. Like that's that's yeah. you know a lot of trust there too. So I think um, we have to represent. And the and the other hard part too, Zuby, with my profession is that a lot of people claim to be plastic surgeons, but they're not. So a lot, you know, these, these people are like, oh, plastic surgery, death in Florida, like every other week, right? These people are not real plastic surgeons. They just say they are. Um, oh. And that press doesn't what do, you mean, what do you mean by that? So they could be a OBGYN. They could be an eye, I, there's eye doctors that are doing breast implants. Um, there are dentists doing facelifts. So, that, and they call themselves plastic is that I mean, legal or so, is that, yeah. are they, so it's, it's, um, not illegal. So every physician in the U S Subi gets a physician and surgeon license. So if you're an internal medicine doctor, your little certificate says physician and surgeon. Okay. Why? Ah. Because if you're the internal medicine doctor on a farm with no other doctor within 200 miles, you're going to deliver a baby. You're going to stitch people up. You're going to mm. remove cysts. You're going to do those things, right? So so in the U.S., there is this issue, um, for better or for worse, it's good in some situations, really bad in other situations, where once you graduate from medical school, you get a physician and surgeon license. Um, and mm. so you can. it's unethical to claim something you're not. And if you get sued, defending that in court is going to be tough. Um, but no, they can, they do it and they do it all the time and they call themselves cosmetic surgeons instead of like, let's say I'm a board certified cosmetic surgeon. That's not a real board mm. certification. That's so interesting. I, I didn't know that I have learned yeah. something. I've so learned a lot of times new. we get a bad rap and the press doesn't differentiate either. They're like plastic surgeon, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like looking at this person in my, like, I don't know who this person is. Look them up. They're mm. not. They were like, I don't know an allergy doctor. <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't know that. I, I actually thought that the specialties were more differentiated in terms of the accreditation. I didn't know that you could be a I mean, they are when we do our boards, and, when we do our yeah. boards and we pass our boards. Yeah, I mean, all the questions are very direct to what we're doing. But once you're out, um, mm -hmm. there's so many people, you know, kind of we call it um, working out of their scope of practice. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's, that's common why it's so knowledge. important so, to ask your doctor, what did you do your residency in? Cause you can say, are you board certified? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm board certified. You didn't ask them what they were board certified in. <laughs> or well, they can okay. lie and say I'm board certified in the board of cosmetic surgery, which is a fake board. It doesn't exist. No oversight. Wow. So, you know, you are the terms what did you train in, yeah, the the term plastic surgery. What's the what's the true and proper definition of that, and what's the differentiation between plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery? Well, cosmetic surgery is a sub branch, or we call it aesthetic surgery, is a sub branch underneath plastic surgery. So when we become plastic surgeons, we have to train in hand surgery, 
microsurgery, meaning taking a muscle and moving it to reconstruct a breast, or motorcycle accidents, taking a muscle and covering the exposed knee bone or shin bone so that that leg survives. So microsurgery, burn surgery, and ICU that goes along with that is a lot of our training. And um, uh, craniofacial. So when people are born with, you know, cleft lip and palate, um, uh, shape, the regular shape of their skull that will impede how their brain grows. Um, so all of those things are the base of our foundation. So when someone comes in for hand rejuvenation, I've seen all those tendons. I've put all those tendons back together. I fixed those bones. So my understanding of what appears to be a simple procedure is going to be very different than someone who trained in eye surgery. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I always say our training is like a pyramid in plastic surgery. We learn so much and then we specialize into one of these five things. Whereas the other people, their training is in something complete. It's like an upside down pyramid, right? Their training is in like eyes, but they're doing like boobs or they're doing mm-hmm. liposuction or they're doing things. So we, we have a very broad training and, and also plastic surgeons um, work with all the different specialties. So we have to speak the language of every specialty. So the orthopedic surgeons, when they put a bone together, we have to cover the bone. So it doesn't get infected when brain surgeons, you know, do a flap to expose the skull. If that flap dies, we have to bring in like a neck, something from the neck to cover that flap. So the, so the bone of the um, skull doesn't get infected. So we have to speak the language of every specialty and we're, we're available for every specialty to help. And I think people don't realize that they just think like we're beauticians. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, th- I think the term plastic surgery, I think people's brains, tend to jump to just sort of vanity treatments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the brain tends to jump, even though it's not an accurate assessment of the of the whole field. And I'm sure there's plastic surgeries who don't even do any of that. They kind don't. Of stuff, oh, right? there's that many. They, yeah. yeah, there's so many yeah. plastic surgeons who do no aesthetics at all. Mm-hmm. How much has the industry changed since you've been in it? How has, how has it changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think there's swings. So, you know, surgical was like a, and like big Pamela Anderson breasts and like, you know, that sort of thing was huge and small butts. Now, then it went through a stage where everybody was doing minimally invasive and non-invasive like fat reduction or lasers or injections. Now it's swinging back again towards surgery. People just want a one and done fix. Um, I think uh, with COVID, a lot of people were on Zoom. So neck surgeries literally skyrocketed. I've never done so many facelifts like ever. Um, I was doing like two a week. It was crazy. Um, and also people really, I think, were confronted with their mortality. Um, and they were like, life is short. I'm going to do this stuff. I'm going to be happy and I'm going to take care of myself. So the other thing that I noticed is people really wanted advice from experts and I feel like influencers became a little less influential when, especially when it came to skin um, and these procedures uh, because again, through COVID people really looking to the experts. They didn't care like what Joe Schmo said. Now I think it's going back away from that. I saw Zuby's like left eye start to twitch. Um, (laughs) So I think that that was helpful, um, you know, and honestly, like I'm like you, you know, politically and in philosophy and stuff like that. And so I think a lot of my patients, and I was very loud about it too, which was crazy because I thought literally I was going to lose all my patients and the absolute opposite of that happened. 
So okay, tell me tell me more about that. I'm I'm actually really curious, especially yeah. with you being in the belly of the beast in Los yes, Angeles. Yes, in Los Angeles. Yeah. So I I was like, you know, when I first came out as like pro Israel and I started speaking, I lost like three thousand followers on Instagram within thirty minutes. Like I was like, wow. but I was just like, you know, I, I had heard this saying that up until the age of forty, you need an ego to sort of grow and like have drive and to succeed. And after the age of 40, it's about grounding yourself and letting all of that go and paying it forward and sort of giving back. And, um, and so I was like, okay, that's my Instagram. I grew it and I'm going to lose it all, and but I'm going to be myself and it's going to be great. So I just kept going. And that was like a real big lesson to me is like, you can't get canceled unless you submit to it. Right. Yes. If you keep going, new opportunities open up and, I've gotten so many, like I've gotten to meet so many cool people like you and gotten so many interviews and speaking opportunities. And with my patients, I actually had one patient call and she's like, ah, like, you know, colonizer or like whatever. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, oh, but, but the rest of them, I would walk in the room and they're like naked because I, you know, doing a post-op check for like whatever I did to their body. And they're like hugging me crying. And they're like, I loved you before. I'm obsessed with you now. And like, thank you for what you say. And thank you for being you. And so how sad is it, you know, that my parents left Iran to come to America to have free speech, to have all of this stuff. And now I'm a hero for speaking my mind. Like, mm -hmm. so sad. Yeah. Does it sort of amaze you, especially as someone who came to the USA in the mid 80s, does the way that things have sort of shaped out over the past 30 to 40 years is that do you do you find it weird? Because I feel like we're going through this strange inversion or this strange sort of topsy turvy land where, you know, up is down and down is up and right is left and left is right. And it's like it's sort of come full circle in this strange way where even, I mean, even speaking sociopolitically, we've reached a funny stage where a lot of people who are quote unquote considered conservative are more liberal in many ways and do a better job of defending and conserving traditionally liberal values. I mean, something as obvious as freedom of speech. Um, than people who call themselves liberals. And, it, you know, you've got a lot of people on the left side of the aisle or who call themselves liberal who have been very much like aligning with the with the establishment, right? Not, not fighting the power, but becoming the power and, you know, loving big pharma and siding with these giant corporations and even siding with the military industrial complex and all of these things. And it's more sort of, you know, centrist to conservative libertarian leaning people who are more like, huh? Like, no, we do want free speech. Right? It, it, it's very odd. I mean, in November, I spoke at a university in, in um, Florida. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I got protested. I've never been protested before. Congratulations. Like, this was my first time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm leveling up. Uh, it was my first time in real life, like, you know, dozens, dozens of protesters, you know, with anti-Zuby signs and uh, all, all sorts of stuff. And I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of surreal. And it was funny because my speech the topic of my speech was why freedom of speech is important. And you've got all these young students there who are trying to deplatform me and trying to ban me from coming to their campus. There's in also Florida. Sort of ex in Florida, there's also an extra level of humor to it, given that, you know, trying to stop the black man from coming to campus and, you know, it's yeah. all these angry white calling themselves liberal kids. And mm -hmm. I'm just like, this is, 
this is an interesting turn of events. What's happening here? So how how does that um how have you seen that play out? Because I know well, you're far more outspoken than most on this. No, I mean I think that what happened in Iran is happening here, and it's flipped so quickly, and it's the same smell. Right. So back there, they were like, why is the Shah living in a castle where there's homeless people like in the streets? You know, so it was this whole like um, wealth gap and um, socialism and fairness and and caring for like all people and distribution of wealth. And um, it's the same stuff. And it flipped so quickly. Right. Um, and I just see it flipping so quickly here too. And it sounds great, but anyone who's lived in that socialist communist country and escaped and made it to America will tell you it doesn't work. And they're like, no, but we'll do it differently. And I'm like, no, you won't. It just, it's, not, it's, not <laughs> it's not conducive to human nature and it makes people sad. It makes people upset. It makes people feel like they have nothing to reach for. If everyone's getting the same thing and everyone's the same and no one identifies as anything and no one can speak, what's the point? Like, how do you find happiness in that if you can't be an individual and if you can't um, aspire to goals and to whatever it is that you value and that will fulfill you? So now it's interesting seeing what's happening in Iran. And it's the grandchildren of and the children of those people who overthrew the Shah that are walking through the streets saying death to us that we said death to the Shah. Mm, interesting. So 40 years later, you, and the, you know, some people are saying it's the curse of that generation. What's happening to the, you know, their children in Iran um, because of what they did. This is happening to their children. So it's just... Um, very interesting to me. And I'll tell you, like one of the high schools here, even they had a Iranian history course and the kids came home and they're like, mom, I didn't know the Shah was bad and Khomeini's good. And I'm like, what are they teaching you? Wow. And this is, you know, a very like Iranian heavy community in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And if that's happening here, what are they teaching them in these universities? What are, how are they spinning things? Who are these professors? Who put them there? And who's pushing back, more importantly? And that's why I started speaking out, because my daughter applied to my high school, which made me feel super young. Um, but I was just like, you know what? She's four years away from college. I got to start saying something. And I just started by just doing hashtag Shabbat Shalom on my Instagram. And I, and I got heart, heart palpitations just from that. Like that was an act of courage big time for me because in Iran, you didn't say you were Jewish. You didn't say anything. We even changed our last name to not sound Jewish um, to avoid persecution. And you, you know, observed your religion in quiet. Um, so putting a mezuzah on my office door and on my house, saying Shabbat Shalom on Instagram, all of those things were, they, I paused and I had, you know, some trepidation. Um, but at the same time, I was just like, if I don't speak up, what kind of world am I leaving behind for my kids, my grandkids, other people's kids? Um, and so I just said, nope, uh, my parents didn't risk everything to bring me this country for me to shut up. So I didn't. I love that. Honestly, that makes me, I'm so happy to hear that because it's too rare. And I've had, man, I've become this lightning rod for like non-woke people in every industry and country, the amount, <laughs> the amount of the thousands of, you know, messages and DMs and emails from people in, whether they're in 
Hollywood or they're other musicians or they work in the medical field or they're in media or sports, whatever it is, there's been this big chill, as I'm sure you're aware, right? There's been I love, this, this yeah. chill of people. And it's weird. I mean, in the past few months, I've been to the UK, I've been to Australia, I've been to the States, and it's the similar conversations everywhere, whether that's about the pandemic response, or it's about politics, or it's about certain social issues. And there's a lot of people who are not with certain narratives and who want to push back. But of course, you know, as you, as you said, you know, they're fearful of whether it's just backlash on social media or losing followers or having their job put at risk or losing sponsors if they're a podcaster or a YouTuber, getting demonetized, getting kicked off of social media. There's all of these concerns and it's, it's a big shame because we live in, you know, there, there are genuinely many places in the world as, as, you know, of course, you know, where speaking your mind can have like really serious, like super serious consequences, you know, not just, oh, you get canceled or you lose a couple yeah. of followers. But when I'm seeing people in the US, in the UK, in Canada, in Western Europe, in Australia, terrified, not not just like a bit hesitant, but like terrified to say basic things that aren't even all that controversial. There's a it's it's very concerning because it's like, well, if people in the freest countries in the world are afraid to say certain truths or just certain opinions or even to just say who they are and what they believe, hey, this is who I am. These are my religious beliefs. This is where I'm from. This is what I'm about, um, especially in this age where there's this sort of trite and shallow obsession with inclusion and diversity and tolerance and equity and whatever. And you hear all these terms all the time. But then at the same time, people are like deathly afraid yeah. to deviate a little or to show some diversity or to you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Ask questions. Yeah. Ask questions, right? Not even just state an opinion. Just go yeah, like, wait, exactly. hang on. What about what about this? Or is that making sense? So I, honestly, I, I admire and respect the fact that, you know, I think in each of these different professions and sectors and all these different worlds, we need the people who have the backbone, men and women who will just stand their line and ask those questions and make those statements. And they're not worried about being canceled. Um, and Zuby, I, I have a question that, for you. Do you think yeah, go that, ahead, please do, do. do you think that you and I are at a certain advantage, whether it's with skin color, you know, my gender, my background, that we can say things that maybe some lighter skinned people couldn't say? No, actually, not really. Not really, because all that happens is you just get different words thrown at you. I see. Right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. if you are a if you are a black person who mm -hmm. has more conservative or libertarian leanings or is openly in the USA, if you're if you're an open Republican or you're a fan of Trump or whatever it is. And like, it's safer to say those views as a white man, right? They might still call you racist. They might call you racist, mm -hmm. right? But actually, that's better than the things they'll call you if you're a black person and you say that and, and stand on that, right? You're not going to be called a race traitor. You're not going to be called a... You know, you're not going to be called the N-word. You're not going to be called an mm -hmm. Uncle T. You're not going to be called, mm -hmm. a, you know, there's all this terminology, which I think actually can be even worse 
and sort of more venomous and hostile when people expect you to quote unquote be on their side, right? So maybe right. as a woman, right? As a woman, there might be, as a woman who's an immigrant, people might think, oh, okay, you're supposed to fit in this box. And then if you don't fit perfectly in that box, then because they expect you to, there's even this sort of greater. It's like worse. Can, yeah, I had, yeah, a, I had an worse. employee who was a lesbian and she was telling me that she was very moderate in her views, but her mm-hmm. you know, gay community made her feel like she was like a part of the KKK or something. <laughs> like, yep. there, all there right. you go. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think I think you're right in a certain sense. Um, but I yeah, do in think fact, but I do think in, yeah, in the fact, background so, so, does the background and like the diversity and you having been in Saudi Arabia or you having grown up, you know, in, in with a little bit more um international knowledge, I think can be an advantage too. Yeah, it, it certainly can be, but I I honestly I think that courage is courage. You know, I think that some people simply we all have excuses. Everyone has excuses to not right. I mean, you you have all the excuses that people use. Oh, you know, oh, I, I can't speak up. I'm married. I can't speak up. I have kids. I can't speak up. I have a job. I can't speak up. Right. I run a business and I have everybody clients, says that right? to me. They're like, I can't what speak were you up. Thinking? Yeah, I can't speak up. I'm in L.A. I can't speak up. Yeah. I'm in Cal- Everyone has their excuses, right? Someone won't speak up because they don't make a lot of money and they're afraid to lose that. Someone else won't speak up because they make a lot of money and they're afraid to lose that. Right there. There's always going to be reasons and excuses for people to just stick their head down and cower Mm -hmm. away. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think all of that can be flipped. I mean, you said it yourself, the fact that you have children, I I understand that you think about their, you think about their future and you think about what country, culture, society do I want them to grow up in? Do I want them to be less free than I was? Do I want them to have fewer opportunities? Do I want them to be judged? on their skin color and their, eth- absolutely not. So given where certain things are going, actually you have to push back, right? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want my, I don't want my future children growing up in a society where they're taught that they're victims or that they should have animosity against white people or that they're oppressed just because they have darker skin tone or I don't, I wouldn't want my daughter to be thinking that all the men around the world are, you know, running this thing called the patriarchy that's going to oppress her and prevent her from mm-hmm. doing this and this. And men are trying to control her. I wouldn't want my sons to think that they're defective girls and that their mass, their masculinity is toxic. All, it's like there's a, there's narratives for everybody. You know, there's all these different narratives that are out there. Um, I think the pendulum think, is swinging back. Do you think it's going to swing back? Like, you know how like in my industry went from surgery, non-surgical, surgical. I think there's going to be a swing back. And I think yeah. people like us are going to, you know, be at, at the head of that wave. I, I absolutely think so. And I'm already seeing it happening. Um, I, I've been very outspoken, especially over the past five years at this point, four or five years. Um, and it's far less lonely now than it was even in 2018 or 2019. It's not as lonely and I can say certain things and it's a little bit like, you, you know, how the C19 narrative has shifted now yes. and you can, there, there's things that you can very openly say or question now and you don't get the insane backlash. Like when there were certain things I was saying in March, April, 2020, and people wanted to come for my head, right? I was being called the worst things right. under the sun. You're you're killing people. You're this. You're that. You know, people were trying to deplatform me off the platforms because I was questioning the lockdowns and questioning right. masks. This is before the vax even came, right? Then it got even worse. Um, but it's interesting because now, less than three years later, 
it's totally okay to ask those questions. And it's totally, even on YouTube, I mean, there's videos that were getting pulled off YouTube, people getting banned on Twitter, whatever. Now you can say that stuff. Suddenly, like, you, you can now say it and it's okay. You can't go too far. Right. But people were, you know, people were, so the Overton I mean, window is reopening. Did you see that law that came out that said they can pull your medical license if you, if you say misinformation about like COVID, but yeah, thank Can- God. Canada did the same. Thank God a couple of days ago, a judge put an injunction and um, a bunch of physicians sued um, Newsom and mm. it's on hold. Thank God. Good. And I was just like, Good. okay, we're in Iran. Iran has happened. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. And, and, you know, I think human beings, we, we always need to be very vigilant of these things because I always, I say it on so many podcasts, I remind people all the time that human nature doesn't change. Human mm-hmm. nature is the same as it was 100, 500, 1,000, 10,000 years ago. Human nature doesn't change. We get access to better stuff and we have mm-hmm. access to history. But there's always that, certainly on a societal level and on, on a nation level, things always tilt towards authoritarianism. It always tilts towards more and more Mm -hmm. centralized governmental control, more and more tribalism, more and more like that's just that's how it goes. And it can be accelerated when people are afraid. So if you can strike fear into people, whether it's done artificially or from a naturally occurring phenomenon, that's always an opportunity for them to centralize and claim even more power. And then it's hard to. It's hard to get those freedoms and rights back if you give them away. And this cycle just continues and continues. Every single country, as time goes on, it keeps happening. Some countries have better systems to kind of have checks and balances. For example, in the USA, having 50 different states with different governors and more decentralized governance, that certainly helps. Somewhere like the UK, it's much more top-down, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, okay, they're instituting lockdowns here, but they're you know, the, U- the UK doesn't have a Florida. It doesn't have a Texas. It doesn't have a tennis, right? It's like, it's just top down. Most countries are more, are more like that. So in the US, there's at least that decentralization. And it's not just like, okay, there's one guy at the top and whatever he says goes, right? Even yeah. on a state level, as you said, Newsom got blocked by, you know, he's trying to implement something and there's checks and balances that prevent him just from, beca- yeah, just from becoming dictator of California. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I just think people always have to be vigilant, but I think that having a few people, having a, a, a loud vocal minority sort of standing up and waving the flag and saying stuff that other people don't want to say, it creates just enough sort of chinks in the armor and cracks in the dam to stop stuff from going too crazy. That's why I think that, you know, these conversations are so important. I agree. Yeah, I think the two things that, you know, I've been seeing that are, you know, are a huge problem is the indoctrination in the universities right now and what what's happening to our kids and them being afraid to speak up in university. What's the point of university if you can't talk to people with differing views from you? Mm-hmm. Um, that scares me a lot. And then the open borders um, scare me a lot uh, with, you know, I just it's just, I don't know, terrifying. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think that, yeah, the stuff that kids are, the stuff that's being pushed, not just at universities now, but even in schools, mm-hmm. even from very young ages, I don't know. I don't think it's happening everywhere, but it's pretty widespread. A lot of it is concerning. Um, you know, some of some of it is outright false, right? There's stuff that kids are being taught where I'm just like, that's literally not mm-hmm. true. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's one thing to teach something as a theory 
and it's another to teach it as a reality. So if you're in university, for example, um, you know, I think people should learn about different political philosophies. People absolutely should learn about different religions. People should learn about different social theories. I don't think there's anything wrong with learning about critical race theory as a theory. I agree. Well, that's what it was. It was a university course. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with learning about Marxism. Right. Right. But there's another thing being taught or indoctrinated into having a Marxist worldview and being taught that that is the way to see the world. And that's just what it is. Right. You could learn the you know, there's all these theories and ideas that are out there. But I think what's concerning is a lot of it is just being taught as fact. Right. Right. It's being taught like, okay, this is just it. This This is is objective. Yeah, this is objective reality. This is the best and most accurate way to look at human society and to look at other people and so on. I mean, just this morning, um, I got sent because I, I get sent a lot of stuff. Oftentimes mm-hmm. people want me to share things, but to share them mm-hmm. anonymously. And I got sent some stuff from a um, substitute middle school teacher here in the USA. I don't know, you know, it was an an anonymous tip kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was various sheets from the curriculum, particularly Mm. on the subject of gender, but then also like race and kind of like the privilege hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they sort of just have very clear sort of diagrams and, you know, sort of explaining, you know, the difference between what they call the difference between sex and gender, you know, they use the, you know, yeah. sex, sex is what you're assigned at birth based on a doctor's judgment. Gender identity is, you know, gender is how you think and feel. Mm-hmm. And this is, and I'm like, that's not, but, but it's being stated like, this is just, this is just fact. This is just mm-hmm. how it is. And it's like, no, this is, th- this is actual misinformation. And then there was the other one, um, you know, there was something about the sort of privilege, almost like the privilege hierarchy. It was almost like a diagram showing, you know, if you are white, and you're male, and you're heterosexual, and you're Christian, all these things, then you are as close as possible to the uh, to power and privilege. Mm-hmm. And then on the outskirts of the diagram, they have, you know, immigrants, and black people and LGBTQIA, and, uh, you know, all, all these things. And, and it's, it's just, it's just written as if it's just fact, almost like it's, like it's so science. Sad. I think it's so sad. Like, I will tell you, like, I'm an, a surgeon, right? Like, I'm the, definitely the minority in the surgical world. I never was like, I am at a disadvantage for being a woman. I just worked my ass off pregnant. And when I came out, all of those things that these people would tell me is a disadvantage was my differentiator. It was the reason why I was successful because I'm like, I'm brown. I understand all sorts of skin. I understand brown skin. Or I'm a woman. I, you know, understand what a woman wants and, you know, a female aesthetic. Like you can make things that they keep telling you is a disadvantage into differentiators when you're marketing yourself or when you're like, so I just, I think it's so sad that they're teaching these kids, like you're disadvantaged. You are going to have such a tough time making it. It's like, no, we're in the U.S. We're merit, hard work. And I'm sorry to say it, but talent. Mm -hmm. So I work really hard. I'm sure there's a lot of other people working hard, but maybe they don't have a certain talent or maybe they didn't, uh, they were scared to pursue the talents that they have or whatever it is. I I truly and honestly believe anyone in the U S with hard work and talent and perseverance and grit can make it. I agree with you. And isn't it amazing that there's a small percentage of people who get angered by such a statement? Yeah. I mean, you have 
every if you wanted to play victim like you've got a, you have a lot of cards in your deck right you've got a lot of cards in your deck you could i'm you know i i'm an immigrant you know i we had to flee uh, my country of origin i'm a woman i'm a woman of color a woc um, you know, I, I posted my holiday like work party and somebody like messaged, like, I don't see any women of color. And then I looked up the definition and I was like, I'm a woman of color. <laughs> <laughs> You're Jewish. Well, sometimes Jewish is a funny one. Jewish is a yeah, funny Jewish one. Jewish is some, a funny one. Jewish sometimes, funny sometimes, one. sometimes you get the victim points. Sometimes you get the oppressor points. They, yeah. It depends on, it depends on what's convenient at the time. So you know, yeah. sometimes you can play that one. Sometimes they're like, oh, you know, so you're a, you know, you're a Zionist oppressor or whatever. But yeah, people have all these weird, people have all these weird hangups, you know. Um, and ultimately, it's also just divisive. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, we have, of course, look, people have their differences like that. And that makes it, that's even what makes life interesting, right? We're not just these clones and, and drones. Everyone's got their background and their perspective and they look different and they've experienced different things and have different personalities and are from different parts of the world. And all of that stuff to me is like, that's awesome. I'm not here trying to put people in some kind of hierarchy or, you know, victim categories or whatever. The other thing too is whatever. like suffering, suffering. I mean, I hate to say it, but it builds character. It gives you maybe a purpose for life. Um, I have a friend who says, if you love someone, you, you wish them some suffering and some hardship because yeah. if you know like i actually worry for my children <laughs> you know i'm like i keep telling them like my suffering and my hardships like to motivate them to like work harder but they you know it, it's horrible to say that but i just think that that's what builds character it gives people mm -hmm. their um purpose sometimes is i'm gonna fight for this or like for yeah. me i'm an activist against anti-semitism because i suffered anti-semitism or, you know, I, a lot of me becoming a physician and really, um, you know, looking into plastic surgery and all stuff was my mother passing away and having a terminal illness. So, you know, it, it kind of shapes you, these hardships. So instead of victimizing yourself based off of your hardships, you need to channel it into something positive to go out in the world and make positive change and to, you know, I always say like, making money and being successful gives you the power to help others. There's no dirty word in success. There's no dirty word in money. Um, you no. can use that to do a lot of good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is the way that they've sort of inverted the term uh, privilege or even- They call me success, privilege right? and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. <laughs> I call it success. I like a positive connotation to what I've done with my life, not a feel sure. bad for my hard work and success. When people call me call me privileged, I, I agree and amplify. I'm like, yes, absolutely. I'm very privileged. I was born in the mid 80s in the UK to an intact family um, with great loving parents who instilled good values in me. I have four wonderful older siblings. Um, actually, I've never wanted for a, a meal um, I've never not known where my meal is going to come from or where I'm going to sleep. Like I have all sorts of privileges. Um, I'm able-bodied. Mm -hmm. I speak English as a native language. I'm in good health with no sort of major, you know, with no hereditary illnesses or man, I, I, I could rack, I could, I could give people real off a hundred privileges that I have off the top of my head. Um, I'm 
is that supposed to be a bad thing? Is that supposed to be something I just something don't I'm like the word because it has a negative yeah. connotation. Like you can, everything the, you just listed, Zuby, mm. are things you should be grateful for. The blessings, yeah. Why not yeah. call it things to be grateful for instead well, of- Well, this is what's interesting. Well, that's what's interesting because privilege didn't used to have a negative connotation, right? But the the wokies have made mm-hmm. it sound negative. If you said if you said someone was privileged in the year two thousand, no one would have taken that as a as a sort of True. negative thing. It just means that you your circumstances and perhaps your parents and family put you in a you know my my children will be privileged by default whenever I have children. Of course, they'll be privileged mm-hmm. um, in various ways. And I think the most important thing, actually. And I think this is part of why, you know, you talked about the the struggle and the hardship. And I think what struggle and hardship does, of course, I think why it builds character is maybe perhaps twofold. Part of it is, you know, it's naturally building your strength and resilience like exercising does. Mm-hmm. But I think also that it provides perspective, right? And with perspective comes gratitude. So even when it comes to your children who aren't going to go through some of the hardships that that you that you did, um, I, I would say that I'm saying this as a non-parent, but I would think that as long as they have perspective, yeah. right, as long as they understand that, you know, on a global and on a, on a historical scale, you know, just kind of how, how good they have it. And, and, and in fact, that means that they should work in even harder and do even more to sort of give back and make the world better and impact people and, and all of that. That's certainly how I view things. Um, then I think as long as you have that perspective, you don't always need to go through all of the battles and the trauma and the hardship that other people have gone, th- have gone through, but it's good to know that people do go through them and mm-hmm. that you could go through them and that you're fortunate to not go through them and so on. And I think as long as you have that perspective, I think the problem with quote unquote privilege can be if it wraps people up in this bubble and they're sort of disconnected from global and historical reality and they're not even aware that like there's so many people in the world who go through such rough times and they can't empathize and relate Mm -hmm. and be compassionate about anything because they've been so you know sort of wrapped up in cotton and they also don't know how to deal with like minor issues or obstacles because they've never had them before to me i think that's the problem i don't think think the problem is But I think woke culture and the wokies, as you call them, are making anyone who's successful, they wrap them in that bubble. Like Mm -hmm. they don't know anything about you. They come online, they're like, well, you're privileged, you know? So it's sort of like there is no, there is no deeper digging. (laughs) There's no like background, nothing. Yeah. You know, my, my view honestly is like, for lack of a better term, honestly, like screw them. Who cares? Exactly. Right? If someone if someone doesn't know anything about you and they're just coming with all these aspersions and assumptions and negative connotations based off of, I don't know, your Instagram photo or whatever, mm-hmm. like that's not your problem, right? Like you can't explain to every moron in the internet who decides to jump to a million conclusions off of nothing, everything about, you know, you don't, you don't owe them an explanation. Like they can be wrong, right? If someone wants to just be wrong, I'm like, okay, you know, that's your... That's your right. Something I'm getting better and better at is, and I've been on social media a long time, <laughs> um, but you know, just accepting that you know you don't you, you don't owe everyone a reply. You don't owe everyone yeah. an explanation. No, and sometimes your right? followers will will defend you for you. You don't need to do it yourself. Exactly. You know, you don't need to jump in. Oh, you know, 
John one four eight three six nine yes. said that I'm you know with his eight followers. With his eight followers, like you don't yeah. Have to, yeah, it's like you don't have to reply to that person. Yeah, you know? and his dog or cat profile photo. It's like just ignore <laughs> it. You know. Um, so Sheila, what is uh, what is next for you? Oh my gosh. Um, well, we are expanding into Nevada. That's my uh, plan B. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's big, you know, college applications are coming up for the kids. And, you know, I take it back to one of the things that you said is like being a parent is, you know, the most important job. So I'm really trying to do a good job of um, leading uh, and delegating within my businesses so that I am super available for my children, especially in their teenage years. Um, because I always say, you know, if your kids end up on crack, you failed, it doesn't matter like how <laughs> successful you are. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that, you know, that family life and, um, cultivating that, that, that time that you have, they're never, they're not getting younger. And, you know, one, the, one of them will be off in college in a couple of years. So I'm really just trying to, um, you know, sit in my faith and, sort of think about what's important, what I want to do. I always, I would look around my house. I'm like, okay, we made it. Like we did it, you know, like now I need to enjoy it and give back. And so that's really where I'm finding a lot of fulfillment is speaking, educating, being with my family um, and just sort of, um, you know, letting, letting it take its course and see what comes up next. But yeah, no, it's, it's been great. We got a magazine cover coming up, tons of interviews, um, Hopefully, you know, we'll get we'll get another show, um, just little things. But I'm so just happy and fulfilled. Um, and I just want to spread that message that, you know, you can have it all. It just takes a minute to get there. <laughs> like you have to work hard and sacrifice, but you can get to the point where, you know, you do have it all. So that's beautiful. And Sheila, where can people find and follow you online? Yeah. So my main Instagram is Dr. Sheila Nazarian, Dr. Sheila Nazarian. Um, and my podcast that I just did, I'm, I'm venturing into, you know, Zuby world. Uh, it's called The Closet. <laughs> um, we had Megan McCain as our first guest and we had Nate Bazulik uh, as our second guest. And we're, we're interviewing um, Yomi Park, who I'm sure you know the North Korean defector tomorrow. But it's so funny, yeah, because my my uh, agent friends were like, you should do a podcast on beauty. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> There's too much work to do. <laughs> I hear that. That's amazing. Yeah. Sheila, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really loved talking to you. Um, I admire you. Keep I admire you. Work. You too. Thank you. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.